Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. You know, I debated on the title of this episode. Can I even say that word anymore? Maybe I should have chosen truthful engine, or not lying engine, or believable engine. To be honest, truthful, I strive not to offend people. I'm sure that goes without saying, though. So just forget I said it. Anyway, as they say, they probably being the engines, honesty is the best policy. The question is, whose honesty are we talking about? What policy are they allegedly being honest about? And what exactly is the definition of honest that they're working with? On today's episode, first we're going to believe at least six impossible things before breakfast, then we'll do one of the safest things ever in the history of all humanity, in all of time, ever. So affix your blinders firmly about your eyeballs and grab some snacks. Eh, You may want to grab a few more snacks than that. Eh, Maybe just a bit more. Okay, because honestly, here we go. Muhammad Saeed As-Sahaf, also known as Baghdad Bob, Tokyo Rose, Anthony Fauci, Edward Bernays, Pink, the singer, not the color, Joseph Goebbels, Olga Skyabayeva, Karine Jean-Pierre, Mark Zuckerberg, Al Gore, and the January 6th Commission. Figured it out yet? These are some of history's greatest propagandists. Jennifer Mercieka, a professor of communications at Texas A&M University, defined propaganda as communication used as force, something that's designed for warfare. Quote, Propaganda is anti-democratic because it influences while using strategies like fear appeals, disinformation, conspiracy theory, and more. Now, she wrote this as part of an article from July 2021 found on theconversation.com headline, We Are All Propagandists Now. I don't actually care what this article says. It's not the article we're concerned with today. Truth be told, we don't actually have a specific article we're concerned with today. But Jennifer either is or was simply another leftist shill speaking out of complete and total ignorance about how the events of January 6th were fueled by propaganda, lies, conspiracy, etc., etc. Of course, the more we learn, and especially now with the release of all the video footage, the more we know there is definitely propaganda regarding January 6th, but it's all on the side of the left, the, the corrupt and I'd argue traitorous January 6th commission and, of course, the willing participation by the mainstream media. All that said, she did have a good definition of propaganda. It is designed for warfare. It does use fear and disinformation, conspiracy, and anything else to try to force an opinion or a view, a conclusion, on a person or the populace. Now we'll proceed with ignoring what else she wrote in this article, as she had, and possibly still has, just no idea what she's talking about. It was a nice try, though. You know, as far as writing from total ignorance goes. 
We are all well aware of the evil propagandists in this world. Russia or the communists use state-run television, carefully crafted wording for reports, news articles and social media posts that are very carefully controlled, very carefully controlled information dissemination, and such the like. China, of course, has a world-class propaganda machine, all the way to even rewriting the Bible, which I covered a number of episodes back. Joseph Goebbels was a number of things, but more famously, he was Hitler's chief propagandist. As Hitler was rising to power, Goebbels was figuring out the best way to incorporate messaging in order to get people to come to their side. He used catchy slogans, he used subliminal messaging, he developed a new poster design using red ink and cryptic teasers in large type that required the observer to come closer and examine the poster to read the smaller typed message in order to understand the point. He was very well rehearsed for public speaking. He used music and parading or marching to pull people in. He basically scripted everything from the way a venue would look, to the exact setup of the posters and banners, to his arrival just a bit later than scheduled, to his inflection, demeanor, and choreography. But Goebbels wasn't the architect of propaganda. We'll come back to him. Probably not the earliest form of propaganda, but definitely one of the earliest that we know of is called the Bisotin, something like that, inscription. This is a 50-foot high, 80-foot wide carving on the side of a cliff face with a large inscription. This was made by Darius the Great, which you may recognize as the Darius from the book of Ezra, who being a good king, supported the Israelites in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, despite so many people being against them doing that. The inscription and the carving all have to do with Darius conquering his enemies and being just the best and others were horrible, you know, standard propaganda. Of course, propaganda has been used from that point to today by likely every country, every ruler, definitely every dictator, in every way, all the way through today and <laughs> into the foreseeable future. Now hang with me, we're going to go on a little ride. It's going to look like we're off the rails, but don't worry, we're going to pull this baby back into the station at the end. Edward Bernays, an Austrian-born Jew, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, has been called the father of public relations and was considered to be a pioneer in modern public relations and propaganda. According to Wikipedia, quote, his best-known campaigns include a 1929 effort to promote female smoking by branding cigarettes as feminist torches of freedom, and his work for the United Fruit Company in the 1950s connected with the CIA-orchestrated overthrow of the democratically elected Guatemalan government in 1954. He worked for dozens of major American corporations, including Procter & Gamble and General Electric, and for government agencies, politicians, and nonprofit organizations. Bottom line, he was a busy little fellow. Bernays, prior to and after World War I, worked for the government using social psychology to politically persuade the masses by constructing illusions and presenting them to the public as facts. Bernays apparently termed this process as, quote, engineering consent. In that role, Bernays' goal was to show the government, the public or government schools, and the media outlets that were, of course, government-regulated, how to gain control of the population. Now, stepping back to the end of the 1800s, the Pledge of Allegiance was written, essentially the same as is recited today, absent the words, under God, which were added later. This was written by Francis Bellamy, who revised an earlier pledge written by Captain George Thatcher Balch, 
Bellamy at the time was the circulation manager for a magazine entitled The Youth's Companion. A junior partner for the same magazine read the pledge that Bellamy had written and instantly came up with a salute for the pledge. The salute was to stand at attention, extend your right arm straight out and up, palm down toward the flag, snapping your heels together as you do it. That salute was to be held during the entire saying of the pledge. Sound familiar? Later, in 1942, the American Legion codified the proper salute, which was to place your right hand over your heart, but only for the I Pledge Allegiance part, because then at the To the Flag part, you extend your right arm straight out and up, palm upward, and hold that pose for the remainder of the pledge. A few months later, thinking that it looked uh, just a bit too... Uh, on the nose, as compared with the Nazi salute, Congress changed the code to say, yeah, how about we just do the hand over the heart thing and just kind of stop there, <laughs> okay? I bring all that up to say this because over the next 20 years, National Socialism started to gain traction in the United States. As part of that, propagandistic posters featuring the American flag and the original Hindu or Buddhist swastika were produced and the stiff-armed salute to the flag was embraced. Now, just FYI, the original swastika is one where all of the lines are either straight up and down or right and left, and it was and still is a symbol standing for good luck. Of course, it's not used quite as widely now, especially outside of Hindu or Buddhist circles, because, you know, it gets mistaken for the 45-degree twisted swastika of the murderous Nazis. President Woodrow Wilson, one of the most evil presidents this nation has ever known, campaigning for his second term as president in 1916, made a pledge to maintain neutrality in the war that was brewing in Europe. In 1917, Bernays and another man, Walter Lippmann, helped Wilson convince the country that he must break his pledge, and by April 1917, we were involved in the First World War. Bernays, as part of his duty to Wilson, created the slogan, quote, Make the world safe for democracy. And we've all heard Democrats and Republicans alike use this stupid and unconstitutional phrase over and over. Our job is not now, nor has it ever been, to keep the world safe for democracy. We were never intended to be the police of the world, and to be quite honest, we really kind of suck at it. That's the fault of the leadership, not the military personnel, just to be clear. During World War I, the Committee on Public Information, or CPI, hired Bernays to work for its Bureau of Latin American Affairs. Their focus was to garner support for World War I from businesses operating in Latin America, work that Bernays himself termed, quote, psychological warfare. After World War I ended, Bernays was involved in the Paris Peace Conference, where the victorious allies set the terms of surrender— which incidentally was a direct cause for the rise of Hitler, Nazism, and World War II. Bernays got in a little hot water when he told the New York World newspaper the, quote, announced object of the expedition is to interpret the work of the peace conference by keeping up a worldwide propaganda to disseminate American accomplishments and ideals. From his time with the CPI, Bernays had the revelation that if propaganda or psychological warfare could be used on the enemies and allies, and for that matter, the neutral parties during war, why, it could be used in peacetime as well, on the general population. Quote, There was one basic lesson I learned in the CPI, that efforts comparable to those applied by the CPI to affect the attitudes of the enemy, of neutrals, and people of this country could be applied with equal facility to peacetime pursuits, in other words, what could be done for a nation at war could be done for organizations and people in a nation at peace. 
Now, Bernays wrote a couple books in the 1920s, one entitled Crystallizing Public Opinion and another entitled Propaganda. One Joseph Goebbels read these books, observed the lockstep obedience mandated in pledging to a flag, analyzed the posters and other materials, studied what Bernays and the CPI did during Germany's failed attempt at global dominance, and said, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, hey, me too. Now, Goebbels essentially mimicked what we in America started and used the concept of propaganda expertly in Nazi Germany. This is not the first, last, or only time we've exported our evil to the world. Think eugenics, think abortion on demand, think transgenderism. Those are a few of the big ones we've given, or in some cases literally mandated by way of economic threat to the world. Yeah, they can thank us later. And undoubtedly, at some point, they will. <laughs> Side note, salvation through Christ is something solely given by Jesus to us. We have literally nothing we can do to gain it or earn it. Our good works and sins are not weighed in a balance. Thank God, literally. Unfortunately, the same can't be said for global politics in a fallen world. The United States has done much good and been the purveyor of much evil in this world. Our hope should be that we do more good than bad and that the world agrees. Anyway, yet another digression, the bane of my podcasting existence. Goebbels has quite the story. Almost all of it we won't actually get into here for the sake of time, and because his life story is not really the point of the segment. He essentially joined up with Hitler and the Nazi party in the mid-1920s. While Goebbels was not initially given a position of widespread power, he was formulating how he could use radio, the media, and schools to push propaganda into the mainstream and gain support for the Nazi party. After doing some good work boosting Nazi support in Berlin, Hitler replaced his leader of propaganda with Goebbels. Instantly, Goebbels took control of the Nazi newspapers. Through the early 1930s, Goebbels used his skills and the flailing economy, remember this is the Great Depression era, to continue gaining support for the Nazi party. In 1933, Hitler was appointed to the position of Reich Chancellor by President Paul von Hindenburg. Hitler, about six weeks later, appointed Goebbels as the head of the newly created Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. Shortly after that, Hitler was given full and total power through the stepping down of Hindenburg. So what did this Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda do under the leadership of Goebbels? Well, the ministry was split into seven departments, and these were wide-ranging departments covering at least a dozen, if not more, areas, depending on how you count them. The departments were first, administration and legal. Next was mass rallies, public health, youth, and race. Third is radio. Fourth is national and foreign press. Fifth is films and film censorship. Sixth was art, music, and theater. And I think my favorite, the seventh, protection against counter propaganda, both foreign and domestic. Clearly from that last one, they realized that propaganda isn't a good thing unless it's your propaganda. Now, very shortly into Goebbels taking the reins of this new department, he created more sub-departments or organizations or unions, whatever, that had membership required and quickly branched out to areas of broadcasting, fine arts, and literature, attempting to encompass pretty much every area of life with either subliminal or blatantly overt propaganda. Again, in short order, Aryan descent was required to be proven for various fields. Censorship was enacted, people were put out of work, and those that couldn't meet the requirements started moving out of Germany. In July 1934, Goebbels created the German National Broadcasting Corporation, forcing all radio stations to fall under the control of that entity. 
Public loudspeakers were placed all over the country, tens of millions of home receivers were produced and sold to the population. Foreign news was not allowed upon penalty of death. Albert Speer, Hitler's Minister for Armaments and War Production, praised the fact that they used all technical means to dominate the homeland. Quote, Through technical devices like the radio and loudspeaker, 80 million people were deprived of independent thought. Now to wrap up with Joey Baby and move on to this segment, Goebbels was instrumental in crafting Hitler as a glorified and infallible leader. He set up festivals, he oversaw the Olympic Games in 1936, he created exhibitions, but was never overly happy with the quality in Nazi art, film, or literature. I mean, when you limit creativity to a heavily controlled, highly systemized way of thinking, and if you step out of line, you may wake up dead. I mean, creativity kind of languishes. In that, in 1933, Hitler signed an agreement with the Vatican that allowed Catholics to remain independent, but that didn't stop the false arrests of clergy and nuns on baseless charges on which Goebbels capitalized by widely publicizing the trials and the evils of religion. Sound familiar? Slowly, church services were restricted as to when and where they could meet. Crucifixes were removed. Religious instruction was neutered, and by 1937, Hitler stated that he wanted to eliminate the Protestant church. Uh-huh. Pope Pius XI tried to fight back by having an encyclical entitled With Burning Concern, smuggle into Germany, and read from every pulpit on Passion Sunday, 1937. This was not received well by the Nazi party. As a result, Goebbels gave a speech a month or so later, speaking of how morally corrupt the Catholic Church is, and with the arrests and trials and everything, he had a good base on which to make his claims. This resulted in Catholic school enrollment plunging, and the last Catholic school transforming to a public facility by 1939. Harassment and threats helped to squelch the Catholics, and Christians in general, even further. As World War II began spinning up, Goebbels directed propaganda to neighboring countries in the form of films, writings, radio, etc. When they took over a region or a country, he instantly took over all forms of media and started to win or manipulate the minds of the population through his propaganda. At the same time, as World War II continued on, Goebbels was very aware of the importance of mindless entertainment. So he shifted forms of media, such as films, to mostly entertaining rather than propaganda because he already had their minds, now just let them kind of stew in their own brain juices. I'm not sure if that analogy works, but you get my point. Remember, to muse is to think. Placing A at the front of a word negates what follows it, so amuse means to not think. This practice of switching the populace from strict government control and propaganda to nothing but mindless entertainment, you know, leisure activities designed to allow people to not think, it isn't anything new. Once you've got their minds all marching in goose step with the accepted party line, well, just ensure that independent thought is stifled. As the war moved into full swing, Goebbels could no longer oversee all propaganda. Various departments, including the military, had their own propaganda division. Additionally, foreign news and counter-propaganda flowed into Germany and other regions with much greater ease. By the end of the war, Goebbels was able to wrest back control of all propaganda, but it was too late by that point. Moving forward in history, we've seen propaganda used on individuals, demographics, whole populations in peacetime and in war. Of course, the propaganda used on people during peacetime is rarely discussed unless we do it as a retrospective, as we just did briefly with Goebbels. 
Now, there was Tokyo Rose. Actually, there were a number of Tokyo Roses during World War II. They, or she, is synonymous with propaganda, and since she, they, were American, at least somewhere, they were considered traitors. One of the Roses, Orphan Annie, or Iva Taguri, was doing all she could to actually help America, helping Allied soldiers with medicine and supplies, and even delivering coded and not-so-coded messages while she was on the radio to the Allies about upcoming moves by the Japanese. Then there was Seoul City Sioux during the Korean War. She was likened to Tokyo Rose, but without the potential positives, at least not that we know of. She was allegedly a former Methodist missionary named Anne Wallace Sioux, and nobody knows if she was willingly pumping out propaganda or not, nor does anyone know what happened to her, although the rumor is that she was accused by North Korea in 1969 of spying for the South, so she was shot. Then we have Muhammad Sayyid al-Sahaf, a.k.a. Comical Ali, a.k.a. and more frequently known as Baghdad Bob. He was most typically known as the spokesman in Iraq, the information minister, that was shown on Fox News with U.S. troops rolling in the background in Baghdad, right after the statue of Saddam Hussein on his horse was blown up, saying that the Iraqis are fine, the city's fine, most of the Americans have been slaughtered, except, you know, for a few remnants in the city. In fact, the Americans aren't even here. Uh, That was was poorly done propaganda. But he tried. I mean, A for effort. Unfortunately, the U.S. doesn't have clean hands in this propaganda war either, as I already mentioned. We had the Committee on Public Information, or CPI, that Bernays was associated with during the Wilson presidency. During World War II, Americans were mostly anti-propaganda, except for the Writers' War Board, which was a private group of writers requested by the head of the writing staff for the U.S. Treasury Department eh, to help promote the war effort, especially at that point, war bonds. They, of course, branched out to create works of fiction, articles, songs, radio broadcasts, speeches, scripts for troop shows, etc., etc., to promote the war effort. They further went on to create the same kind of material to help promote the UN. Thanks, guys. I mean, seriously, thanks. Thanks for the UN. Thanks, bunches. So although this wasn't officially propaganda, as the United States had pledged a strategy of truth which would give information but not use propaganda to influence public opinion? Well, this was absolutely government-funded and managed propaganda used specifically to influence, you know, public opinion. And on and on we go through the Cold War, the Gulf War, the Iraq War, etc. But today, well, today it's more subtle. And don't get me wrong, I don't believe that all propaganda is necessarily evil. Or maybe better stated, I don't believe it's all necessarily nefarious, Think of the Ad Council. We've all seen advertisement campaigns from the Ad Council for for decades. This was created in 1942, believe it or not. And although they are technically not for profit and they work with various private and governmental agencies to promote whatever, at least in part, they're really just a propaganda wing of the government. If you've ever heard any of these slogans or any of these campaigns, you've been a consumer of the Ad Council. The purchase of savings bonds. What about this phrase? Loose lips sink ships. Yeah, that was them. Smokey the bear, and remember, only you can prevent forest fires. They've promoted the Red Cross for 50 years. Remember the Keep America Beautiful anti-pollution campaign, complete with crying Indian? How about the United Negro College Fund? McGruff the crime dog? The friends don't let friends drive drunk. How about Vince and Larry the crash test dummies? Autism awareness. 
gay and lesbian bullying prevention, telling kids to stop saying things like, that's so gay. How about love has no labels? And most recently, a single week after the WHO declared COVID-19 to be the global we're all gonna die tomorrow pandemic, the Ad Council partnered with the White House, the CDC, HHS, and the media networks to promote, well, whatever basically Trump wanted, and then Fauci and Burks, and then Biden moving forward from there. After that, starting in 2021, continuing still today, the Ad Council is educating all of us mouth breathers on the COVID-19 vaccine, pushed and promoted by Trump and Fauci, then Biden and Fauci, and how wonderful it is, and how everyone should get jabbed unless you're a horrible person that just wants grandma to die, and then boosted, and then we should get boosted again, and boosted, and boosted, and boosted, and I think today that we're finally free of, oh, nope, sorry, <laughs> time to go get boosted. So you can see from that short, incomplete list, not all campaigns are nefarious. Not all aren't, either. In fact, I'd like to be able to say that propaganda violates the commandment to not lie, but it doesn't always do that either. The reality is that propaganda can be completely true. It can be the best information we have on a topic. It can be the right thing for health or safety, but it can still be propaganda. Propaganda is simply something to make you think a certain way, to remove the responsibility of reasoned thought and cause us to just simply react based on certain criteria. It's Pavlov's dog. Think of tobacco warnings on cigarettes or chewing tobacco, as well as the anti-smoking campaigns and the removal of cigarette commercials and advertisements. If you don't smoke, you very likely look at someone smoking as a second-class citizen, right? Are they? No, not based on smoking. When you get into the car, how many seconds pass before the seatbelt is latched? The generations that didn't grow up with seatbelts are fading away. The rest of us, it's an automatic action because that's what we've been told to do. And frankly, it is the right thing to do, but it's reaction because of the messaging. How many people are still wearing masks in public or in the car or in the pool? For most people, it's kind of whatever. You know, they wore them because they knew or thought they knew that they protect themselves and others, but they were fine not wearing them too, whatever. For people like me, the only time I wore one was when I had no other option, and then it was a fake mask, which are a great alternative, let me just tell you. For the rest, they're still wearing them, because that's literally the only way to be safe. Now, Fauci himself admitted that masks don't work, before he said they do work, before he said they didn't work. All studies regarding masks versus a virus have proven they do nothing. Some of them even said on the box that they didn't protect against viruses. Quite literally, the only reason a large chunk of the population wore them, or continues to do so today, is because of propaganda. The messaging was such that it was the only choice available. The presidential press secretary, currently the illustrious Corinne Jean-Pierre, or KJP, quite obviously hired for her skin color, her genitals, and the preferred genitals of her partner, is nothing but a propagandist, except for maybe a few most of them simply speak only good about their overlord, dismiss everything negative, and just like Baghdad Bob, deny anything that doesn't fit the narrative they want to push to the American people, despite the facts and reality staring them and all of us directly in the face. Most recently, KJP has touted Biden's stamina, his vigor, his energy, his intellect. Nobody can keep up with him in the White House. And we all know the test results have determined that is a lie. But she says it 
the complicit media reports it. Headlines are written saying the same, and most people get no further than a headline of anything. Thus, it must be true. Do you recall during, well, I don't know, it was, it was a police shooting or something, but during the era of the George Floyd riots, you had the CNN reporter in Kenosha, Wisconsin, with fire raging in the background, burned out cars in front of that, saying that they were, quote, fiery, but mostly peaceful protests after a police shooting. And yet... The January 6th Commission selectively reviewing, releasing, and commenting on only a few minutes out of 40,000 hours of video of the literally mostly peaceful protest brought witnesses that have now been exposed as being nothing but liars, told us how it was the worst thing to happen ever in the history of everything, when it clearly wasn't and isn't, all the while the leftists and some on the right, supposedly, calling it an insurrection, a very specific constitutional term used for a very specific constitutional purpose. And how many people believe what they're being fed with no actual knowledge of anything? Because if it's more than zero, that's too many. And then we have the biggest purveyor of propaganda, social media. Over 90% of American households have internet access. As of 2021, about 70% of U.S. adults use social media. Over 80% of U.S. adults use YouTube. Nearly 70% use Facebook. 80% use Instagram. 25% use Snapchat. 23% use Twitter or X. And 21% use TikTok. And there are many others. And that's adults. Kids are using social media at massive levels also. And basically in reverse order of what I just said. And that was 2021 data. So it's probably worse now. Now, notice I say propaganda, not dis or misinformation. Speaking what you believe to be true isn't propaganda. You may be wrong, but you have a right to be wrong. And people have a right to evaluate statements and opinions and determine for themselves what's right and what's wrong. Canceling voices, banning people, placing fact checks from supposed experts, manipulating algorithms, all because what was stated was not what was allowed to be stated. That is propaganda. It's made worse when we find out that ex-FBI and ex-CIA are all embedded in some of these social media companies and that some of them were literally working with these agencies during the last election and during the COVID so-called pandemic. And I'm sure nothing has changed, at least for some of them. This is propaganda at a level Goebbels could have only dreamt of. And still today, we're inundated with propaganda. It's everywhere, all the time. And unless you're awake and alert, just, I mean, like every second of the day, it'll slip into your conscious or subconscious or maybe even unconscious thought processes. Unless you've been living under a rock or you're listening to the propagandist, you know that there's at least something weird going on with young people, more specifically young athletes, dying suddenly, just collapsing on the field of practice or play for absolutely no reason whatsoever. I recently posted on my personal Facebook page an article from a site called Vigilant News that had a listing of 46 soccer players. Now, a few were retired, a few were coaches, most were active young players that had died from June to November of 2023. 46 athletes, soccer players. And whether you love or hate soccer, there is no doubt that these guys are definitely beasts when it comes to cardio. Is this normal? I don't think so. But what we're told... At least we were told a year or so back, as young people started dying suddenly with no discernible cause, well, there's this thing called SADS, of course. <laughs> you know, sudden adult death syndrome? It's like SIDS for infants, but this one's for adults, and it's always been a thing. Except that literally nobody has ever heard of that, ever. But that's what we're told. 
right? And everyone was reporting on it like they had definitely always been just so aware of it. It seems like in my nearly 50 years on this planet, a lot of it behind a computer, a lot of it reading news, listening to news, that I would have at least heard of this one time before. But no, 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 I'm the wrong one here. And it doesn't end. Recently found on markcrispinmiller.substack.com, headline, How Low Can They Go? Toronto Sick Kids Hospital Casts Children's Heart Attacks as Normal, Even Offering to Cure Them with Pricey Gadgetry. I'm not going into it, but is this normal? Can you cure a heart attack? Should kids be having heart attacks that need curing? <laughs> no! But at this point, that's what the narrative must be. Otherwise... Other questions need to be asked, and we shan't be asking those questions for legal reasons. How about back at home? Found on TheBlaze.com. Headline, EPA runs competition offering prizes as high as $3,000 for videos promoting EVs. Now, why are they doing this? I mean, why are they giving massive incentives in the form of tax breaks for EV purchasers? Why are they holding vehicle manufacturers hostage using the threat of being cut off from massive future governmental loans, causing them to lose tens of thousands of dollars per vehicle if they don't play ball. Because we all need to believe that EVs are the future. That's the narrative. And it's a failing narrative. But why? Why do we need to believe this? Well, because as we all know, scientists all agree that climate change is going to destroy the universe. And going all electric everything, powered by happy thoughts, sunbeams, and probably Eye of Newt, will save us all. Yeah, propaganda built on top of propaganda, all for an agenda all for a narrative, all for control and for financial gain. We're being manipulated. Heading across the pond to the UK, found on durham.ac.uk. It's the website for Durham University. Headline, graphic warning labels could reduce people's meat consumption. Yep, the byline, quote, a new study from our Department of Psychology has found that cigarette-style graphic warning labels could reduce people's meat consumption. They just want to put warning labels on meat packages. Now, why would they want to reduce our meat consumption? Global warming, of course. I mean, cows fart. That's greenhouse gas. Stinky greenhouses. Raising livestock uses resources and creates greenhouse gases. Slaughtering, processing, shipping, and consuming meat causes greenhouse gases. So eating meat that God said we could eat, well, that's literally murdering the planet that God created. I mean, if only God could have known the destruction that we, powerful humanity, were going to do to his creation. Maybe he would have mandated in the Bible that we all just eat bugs, like the global elitists and climate Nazis want us to do. We can see that the global warming narrative is not a theory. It's absolute fact, and was from the moment it was proposed. Is that because there's indisputable scientific evidence? Nope, not at all. In fact, it's very disputed. Ton of bad science, a ton of assumption, a large, large number of world-class scientists who completely disagree with the narrative, and the number's growing larger by the day. But it's widely accepted as fact because of about 40 to 50 years of propaganda for a purpose. In fact, in a recent segment, I covered the global group of elites named the Council of the Club of Rome, where they basically decided that since the Cold War was ending, they needed something to retain control of the masses, which is where they decided on global warming. <clears throat> decided on global warming, or more precisely, the fear of global destruction due to man-caused global warming. And of course, fear is one of the main mechanisms used in order to push out propaganda. And I could go on ad infinitum with examples. Those are just a few of the more recent ones I've come across. So what are we to do? 
Well, let me restate some things I've stated before. Banning social media or attempting to remove it from the lives of your kids or your own self is fine if you want to do that. I just see it as a rapidly losing battle. For every platform banned, three more will pop up. For every device you forbid it on, on every device you forbid, three more devices are out there, as well as school devices, friends, etc. We're not going to win the battle of canceling social media. We need to learn how to use it and teach our kids how to use it. I also stated in a recent segment that we must be Bereans. And I see no reason why we can't extrapolate that concept to literally everything. The Bereans are literally mentioned once from Acts 17.10 to Acts 17.13 if I'm being generous. Paul and Silas left Thessalonica and came to Berea, which is in northern Greece, went to the synagogue and revealed to them the gospel. The very simple but very important principle is in verse 11, quote, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's it. We are to be a discerning people, a curious people, a critical people, as in examining everything with a critical eye. Did you know that there's only one place in the Bible, zero times depending on the translation, where the word amuse is used? It's when the now blind Samson was brought before the people to amuse them, and that's when Samson caused the entire house or palace or whatever it was to collapse and killed thousands. So what can we learn from this? Well, amusement always leads to death. No, be Bereans, it doesn't mean that at all. But what we can take from the scriptures is that life is not meant for idle amusement, or at least life shouldn't be dominated by idle amusement. Personally, I see nothing that tells me we can't take a break and just kind of veg out for a bit. But even there, we must be aware of how we're vegging out. Take Disney, for example. There's no doubt that Disney, in the Star Wars franchise, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, their cartoons, both movies and TV shows, and their live-action stuff, both movies and TV shows, are pushing an agenda. They're pushing the feminist agenda, the gay agenda, the trans agenda, the anti-capitalist agenda, the anti-American agenda, and the list goes on. Can you go watch a Disney movie? Well, that's potentially a conscience issue between you and God, depending on the movie, of course. I mean, some should be obvious, and I say that to me as much if not more than I'm saying it to you, but no matter what, we need to be discerning. We need to be aware and awake. Do our homework beforehand. Know what we're going to be presented with, even in what we used to consider to be mindless entertainment. Now, we're called to meditate on God, to meditate on his word. We're told to think on things that are pleasing to God, things that bring him glory. We're told to pray without ceasing. Bottom line, we're told to use our minds, a near constant engagement of our minds, worshiping, praising, meditating, discerning, examining, day after day, hour after hour, minute by minute. And although that sounds just exhausting, if God calls us to do this, he must have designed us to do this. We're not called to be easily manipulated through fear or threats or worry. To be manipulated is to lose focus on the truth, instead focusing on the world. Can we bring everything back to the Bible for examination? Yes. I mean, maybe not everything directly. You're likely not going to find anything in there about electric vehicles. Although, to be honest, they might be in the message or passion translations. I mean, there's just no telling what they put in those things. But we can understand why EVs are being pushed on us. Global climate death. And then take that back to the Bible. Are we going to destroy the planet through the use of regular cars and trucks or by eating meat? Uh, no. We have a God that created this planet to sustain life, to repair itself, and this planet will remain until God cleanses it with fire and remakes it perfect as it originally was. And we can do this with every single issue, as all claims, all agendas, all narratives come back ultimately to a worldview. Those worldviews can be tested and examined in light of the Bible every single time.
So stay awake, my friends. Stay vigilant. Examine everything. Know what you believe and why you believe it and stand firm on that foundation no matter what. The world wants us to conform, to squeeze us into their mold, if you will. They want us to believe their politics and their advertisements, share their fears. As Christians, our job is to pursue and follow the truth, to make decisions based on truth, to keep level, clear, discerning minds regardless of, and in most cases, despite what we're being told. Alfalfa, Jolly Green, Aunt Mary, Babysitter, Wacky Tabacky, Bambalacha, Bobo Bush, Good Giggles, Loaf, Dank, Reverend Green, G Boo Boo Bama. Yes, it's been about three whole months since my last segment on Weed, Mary Jane, Zaza Zoot. Or for all you squares out there, marijuana. Now, I had no intention of creating another segment on this, especially not so soon, but, uh, well, here we are. So to catch you up on where we wound up last time, previously on The Logical Christian Podcast. Now, let me give you my view of marijuana just right up front and realize that this may not match your view. It might, but it may not. I think recreational use should be illegal. No exceptions, no decriminalization. It should be absolutely illegal in every state at all times in any amount. It's not the same as or better than smoking cigarettes. No, it's not the same or better than drinking alcohol. At the same time, I'm not 100% there, but I'm very open to the idea of the use of marijuana or CBD oils or whatever for medicinal purposes. What we do know is that marijuana was created by God. So to me, the use of non-modified natural herb or oils seems like something we'd at least want to pursue an experiment with very carefully, very controlled. The problem we have today is that just about everyone has a something that they could need marijuana for, and there are more than enough doctors, and I use that term loosely, that are more than happy to prescribe it for you. I think the vast majority of humanity would agree that drugs like, say, heroin, meth, crack, not good for human consumption. The disagreement would mostly come in as to what's the best way to fight these drugs and the addictions, not if they should be fought. But with weed, it's different. Nobody's arguing that it's not a drug. Everyone agrees it's a drug. The argument is based on a couple main premises. One, is this a gateway drug or not? And two, is this more the same or less harmful as compared to smoking, chewing, or drinking? You know, the commonly accepted vices. We, and by we, I mean the powers that be, have not performed the scientific method correctly with regard to legalization of medicinal or recreational use. Now, how can I claim this? Well, because by doing some simple searching on the interwebs, we literally have no idea if weed is beneficial or just fine or deadly poison, or if it's a gateway drug, or if it's non-addictive, if it's the devil's lettuce, or if it's God's blessing to mankind. Moving on, let's pose another hypothesis, shall we? marijuana use is harmful to self or others. Found on GoodRx.com, headline, Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome and Scrometing. What you should know. Yeah, cannabinoid and hyperemesis syndrome, otherwise known as CHS, will lead to severe vomiting and potentially even scrometing, which is vomiting and screaming at the same time. Found on SciTechDaily.com, headline, New study, marijuana users three times more likely to develop peripheral artery disease. 
found on ACC.org, that's the American College of Cardiology, headline, Frequent Marijuana Use Linked to Heart Disease. Found on ncbi.nim.nih.gov, yes, it's just that easy, headline, Harmful Effects of Smoking Cannabis, A Cerebrovascular and Neurological Perspective. Quote, Apart from being used as a medicine, cannabis or marijuana is the most widely abused recreational drug all over the world. Various studies have reported about the relationship between cannabis use and different detrimental effects like cardiovascular, cerebrovascular, and neurological com complications among different age groups. Now, another division of NIH, this one being the National Institute on Drug Abuse, found on nida.nih.gov, headline, What are marijuana's long-term effects on the brain? Well, this one speaks of a study of both animal research and a growing number of human studies that are all indicating a marijuana exposure during brain development can cause long-term or possibly permanent adverse changes in the brain. Found on psychologytoday.com, headline, Are Depression and Cannabis Use Linked? The article says, quote, It has been well documented that using cannabis during adolescence increases the risk of psychosis, especially in vulnerable youth. In other words, those whose genetics include the risk for mental illness with psychosis, such as schizophrenia. Found on sciencealert.com, headline, Cannabis Use Linked to Epigenetic Changes, Scientists Discover. Using cannabis may cause changes in the human body's epigenome, a study of over 1,000 adults suggests. The epigenome functions like a set of switches activating or deactivating genes to change how our bodies function. Uh, from 2021, found on IIHS.org, headline, Crash Rates Jump in Wake of Marijuana Legalization, New Studies Show. So the two questions that I felt needed to be answered before we legalized recreational marijuana use at a minimum, and really before we legalized widespread medicinal use, were one, is it a gateway drug? And two, is it more the same or less harmful than other vices like smoking, drinking, vaping, chewing, etc.? Well, to answer the first question, go back and listen to episode 134 to the segment entitled Paging Dr. Feelgood, and you'll hear what was told to me by a big man in an orange jumpsuit and wrist and ankle shackles in prison for selling drugs. Bottom line, yes, marijuana is absolutely used as a gateway drug. The second question, is it harmful? Well, that's where we're going to camp once again. Now, you already heard from that previous episode that marijuana is linked to scrometing, peripheral artery disease, heart disease, cerebrovascular and neurological issues, brain changes, depression and psychosis, and genetic changes as well as impairing driving. So, sure, you know, it's just as safe, I mean, if not safer, than smoking cigarettes, <laughs> right? Now, in that previous segment, I mentioned that as of June 2023, there were 38 states plus D.C. that had legalized medicinal use with 24 out of the 51 that had further legalized recreational use. Now, as of November 2023, with all of the potential issues I just mentioned that are being linked to the use of marijuana, well, now we're, uh, we're up. We're up to 41 states plus D.C. with legal medicinal use, so an addition of three in the last five months, and 30 states have legalized recreational use, so an addition of six. Anyone else feel like, uh, I don't know, like that might be insanity? 
Eh, but really, it's upside-down world, isn't it? I mean, we're at a point in this country that everything we absolutely know is bad. Well, that's now good, and everything that we know that we should do is being demonized. That's a larger topic, a much, much larger topic for a much, much different day. But maybe something has changed, right? No, not right. We wouldn't be here if that was the case. I mean, you know that. I know that. So we might as well just go ahead and get to it, right? I've actually been ignoring, uh, well, at least as far as this podcast goes, I've been ignoring a few different weed articles since that last episode. But the one that caught my eye that made me think that maybe it was time again was found on various sites. So let's use your favorite site and mine, thebuzzedreport.com headline. USDA reminds workers to avoid marijuana and CBD amid uptick in positive THC tests and confusion over state reform movement. So let's back up just a bit. The bottom line, regardless of what the states say, marijuana is illegal. Federally, it's still illegal, and it's classified as a Schedule 1 drug. Schedule 1 is the worst of all the schedules. It's listed as a drug with no accepted medical use and has a high potential for addiction and is not safe to use even under medical supervision. Some drugs under Schedule 1 that you may have heard of, in addition to marijuana, is heroin and psilocybin. Now, psilocybin are more commonly known as the magic mushroom, and uh, that's what Joe Rogan swears by, the microdosing of it, of course. In fact, an article came out earlier this year about moms microdosing the magic mushrooms, claiming that it makes them better parents. I'm not sure how we can take cops or the law seriously when all we do is undermine and ignore the law and cops. But again, Probably a bigger topic than we need to cover right now. The argument is out there as to if marijuana should be Schedule 1 or not. I could see that argument, but it doesn't matter if you or I could see that argument. It doesn't matter what side of the argument we're on. The reality is it's a Schedule 1 substance, and therefore it's illegal. But apparently not if a state says it's okay. I mean, I do find it interesting that it's listed as having no medical use, but that's how every state opened the door to legalization, saying it definitely has medical use. Upside down world. And this is where the article in question originates. The article states, quote, U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, food safety workers are being encouraged to exercise caution and avoid cannabis products, including federally legal CBD, as the agency observes an uptick in positive THC tests amid confusion as more states enact legalization. So at this point, you probably have the same question I did. But Dan, I thought you said that marijuana is illegal at the federal level. So why does this say CBD is legal? Well, here's what I found. There are two forms of the plant, cannabis sativa. There's hemp and there's marijuana. Hemp has a very high level of, and I'll get this wrong, cannabidiol or CBD. On only trace amounts of tetrahydrocannabinol or THC, which is what causes the high. Marijuana has fairly high levels of THC while having just trace amounts of CBD. In 2018, the Farm Bill legalized CBD derived from hemp containing no more than 0.3% THC. CBD derived from marijuana is still illegal, still a Schedule I controlled substance. But that's not all. Before you just 
start growing your own hemp plants and deriving low THC containing CBD oils for your own use and pleasure and enjoyment or whatever you use it for. The Farm Bill further stipulates that you must be a licensed grower following all federal and state regulations. But even if it's legal with very low levels of THC, in other words, something that won't get you high, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily legal with regard to your employer. And that's the stance being taken by the USDA. This is the same question that's been asked at my employer by some that work there. Can they use CBD oils, creams, etc.? Well, in my state, it's legal. I guess federally, it's at least somewhat legal, but the company says no. Now, I don't know the specific reasoning behind that, as it doesn't affect me. I don't really care. But my guess is that it's because there's way too much variability in whatever product is chosen to be used, and working in an industrial manufacturing facility with chemicals, machinery, heavy equipment, with the potential of being high is probably a bad idea. They also don't allow the drinking of alcohol on the job or being drunk at work. And if you're compromised in any way on legal medication, again, you're not allowed to be there, at least for most of the jobs. Now, they also don't allow smoking in the entire industrial park, including vapes, but that's more of a site safety issue or a good manufacturing practices issue, as there are certain chemicals that are volatile, as well as certain products that are manufactured under very strict regulation. And they sort of don't allow chewing tobacco, although that's only strictly enforced in specific locations. Apparently, according to our article, the federal government is having a little problem with federal employees failing drug tests resulting in suspensions or terminations. There's a lot of confusion right now as to what is or isn't legal because of all the differences between federal, state, and employer laws, various types of cannabis, and very confusing messaging about the safety or lack thereof of the drugs. To try to combat these false drug tests, which aren't really false at all, as in they're working exactly as designed, but the Fed doesn't like the results because it causes them a headache, well, they're changing the tests. For instance, the DOT has now changed the testing from peeing into a cup, which could show drug use like from marijuana or cocaine for weeks after using it. They went to a saliva test, which shows recent drug use only. So are you impaired now? And that's all. So if you're a cokehead, just don't be a cokehead for a day or two before getting in your big rig and hitting the old highway. That sounds like a good idea, right? The Secret Service has recently relaxed qualifications for prospective agents with respect to prior marijuana use. You know, the Secret Service, you know, the, the people responsible for protecting people such as the president. Uh, you used to Snoop Dogg the Bambalacha in the past? Ah, nah, dude, it'll be fine. The Federal Office of Personnel Management is treating past use more leniently. The Biden admin is handing out waivers for certain workers for past use. Those in the climate sector can toke them if they got them, if they're in a state where it's legal. A push is going on right now to end marijuana testing for federal job applicants altogether, although that hasn't been able to get through yet. The Senate has recently passed legislation that would forbid the CIA and NSA from denying security clearance to employees that have used marijuana in the past. And on it goes, federally and at the state level. So the question I have, one of the many questions I have is, is marijuana safe to use or not? Now, we're told it's as safe as smoking cigarettes. Nay, nay, let me correct myself. There. Safer! 
than Siggy's, in fact. It's more like a kiss on the cheek from your gram-gram and her American flag apron as she's handing you a plate with warm slices of freshly baked homemade apple pie, Lee Greenwood in the background somewhere belting out God bless the USA. That's what marijuana is. So then why are we regulating anything? And if it is truly a Schedule One controlled substance, you know, no medical use, highly addictive, why are we making exceptions for a federally illegal substance at the federal level for past or current crimes of use? And why in the world would we treat a weed or coke addiction as something we only need to worry about now? And not now, but now, again, you know, only when it affects your job. Are we this callous to the value of humanity that we're only concerned with the person to the degree that they can perform their job? Do we no longer care about drug addiction and the destruction it can have on a person and a family? People these days are worried about being replaced by robots. Eh, maybe, maybe not. But maybe we need to be more concerned with some people viewing most of us as robots. You know, just machines that perform a task. And when we finally, inevitably, addictively break down, we're sent to the crushers. So... Back to the point of the segment, is marijuana safe to use or not? Well, to recap one more time, keep this fresh in your mind, I guess this would probably be more of a re-recap since we already did it, or maybe a recap cap, I'm not sure. Marijuana use has been linked to scrometing, peripheral artery disease, heart disease, cerebrovascular and neurological issues, brain changes, depression and psychosis, and genetic changes, as well as impaired driving. Found on CNN.com from November 7th, 2023, headline... Marijuana use raises risk of heart attack, heart failure, and stroke, studies say. So we previously said that use has been linked to heart disease, which is apparently a kind of catch-all term for a number of heart-related issues, one of which is heart failure. Mass population data is always slow-moving, so the results being discussed here are from older data, but with the messaging and the legalizing since this data was collected, I can't imagine it's gotten any better. So marijuana use is on the rise for adults over 65. Between 2015 and 2018, the smoking or use of edibles increased twofold. And binge drinking and marijuana use increased by 450% between 2015 and 2019. Nearly 30% of users have developed a very complex syndrome they call cannabis use disorder. From the description, you and I would likely call it <clears throat> addiction. This specific study involved 8,538 adults over 65 years old who did not smoke tobacco but did use marijuana and were in the hospital for some reason. The study found that those who abused weed, that's their terms, had a 20% higher chance of, quote, having a major heart or brain event when hospitalized compared to over 10 million older hospitalized adults who did not use marijuana. Now, what's been known is that the use of marijuana can lead to a drop in blood pressure. Or at least that's what the thought has always been. But this study suggests that daily use over a long period of time can actually increase blood pressure. Now, the American Heart Association recommends that people not smoke or vape anything, including cannabis, because of the potential for harming the heart, lungs, or blood vessels. Quote, the latest research about cannabis use indicates that smoking and inhaling cannabis increases concentrations of blood, oh man, carboxyhemoglobin, which is carbon monoxide, a poisonous gas, tar, which is partly burned combustible matter, similar to the effects of inhaling a tobacco cigarette, both of which have been linked to heart muscle disease, chest pain, heart rhythm disturbances, heart attacks, and other serious conditions. 
A second study released within a few days of the first involved 160,000 adults with an average age of 54. They followed these adults for about four years to determine if cannabis use would affect the heart. At the end of the study, they found those using it daily had a 34% increased risk of developing heart failure as compared to those that didn't use marijuana at all. This result remained the same regardless of age, sex, or smoking history. But okay, that's no big deal. I mean, people should be able to decide if they want to kill themselves with marijuana or with tobacco, right? I mean, honestly, yeah, I mean, that, that's what I would say. I, I think you're stupid for doing it. I think your life choices kind of suck. But hey, I just had some delicious Five Guys the other day. What's that doing for my health and my heart? Nothing good, right? That's That's for sure. The Bible doesn't specifically say that we can't smoke or toke. So I guess it's a conscience issue, right? Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, right? Well, one could argue that a lot of what we all do on a daily basis could be considered by someone to not be for the glory of God. But again, that's a conscience issue. That's between you and, and God. That said, found on everybrainmatters.org from August 2022, headline, A Vicious High, The Link Between Marijuana and Violence. See, if this is true, well, now this starts to negatively affect others, not just yourself. That's important. The typical argument has always been that smoking weed is harmless because it just makes people want to mellow out and snack. No big deal, right? But more and more evidence is pointing to the opposite effect. Betsy Branter-Smith, a spokesperson for the National Police Association and a retired police sergeant herself, said, quote, The whole country, we're seeing this increase in crime that goes hand in hand with a decrease in concern about things like substance abuse. The problem is, when you continue to desensitize the population against substance abuse, you start to desensitize them against a sense of right and wrong. Now, this article has a lot of study data in it, a lot of anecdotal data in it from nearly 25 years ago up to current date. I'm going to try and summarize and boil it down as much as possible here. A study from 2001 showed that criminal offenses involving a weapon increased as individual marijuana use increased. A 2012 study in Colorado showed that aggravated assaults and other violent crimes increased to above the national average after marijuana was legalized people were found to be more suicidal at a rate of three times for those using marijuana daily, nearly five times for those that are addicted as compared to non-users. Legalization of recreational use has corresponded with a 20% increase in self-harm in men under 40. A 2018 study showed that 60% of those in a program for people convicted of domestic violence admit to using marijuana over the past year, with 30% saying they smoked weed four or more times per week. Even when controlling for alcohol abuse, satisfaction in a relationship, and symptoms of an antisocial personality disorder, marijuana is still a major driver for physical, psychological, and sexual violence of a partner. There is a strong link between marijuana use and hallucinations and paranoia, causing people to lash out violently, including murder. A study from 2007 in Australia found that most of those who committed murder during a psychotic episode did so because they imagined they were in danger from their victim. Two-thirds of those people admitted to using marijuana on a regular basis. Now, looking at some state data... Colorado, who legalized in 2012, are at an all-time high in homicides. 
Alaska, who legalized in 2014, were at a 40-year high in homicides in 2019. Washington, who legalized in 2014, had a homicide rate in 2021 that was 54% higher than 2014 prior to legalization. D.C., who legalized in 2014, is at a 20-year high for homicides. California, who legalized in 2016, is the highest it's been in homicides since 2007. Marijuana is the second most involved substance after alcohol in sexual assaults where the victim is incapacitated. Marijuana can cause the victim to be too high to give consent or to correctly judge safe or unsafe situations, while at the same time it can cause the perpetrator to be too high to read signals or judge if they've been given actual consent. Going back to 2011, marijuana has been linked to mass shootings in Aurora, Tucson, Chattanooga, Parkland, Sacramento, Dayton, and Uvalde. So, can it be proven that marijuana use causes violence? Well, yes. I mean, maybe not in everybody, but the evidence is definitely clearly showing that it's directly related to violent behavior. Okay, so we've got heart failure and violence. We're off to a good start here, right? Second start. Good second start. Let's say that. Found on news.ohsu.edu from January 2022, headline, Chronic marijuana use negatively impacts male reproductive health, may decrease testicular function. As a male who was born biologically male, observed to be and thus assigned male at birth, identifying as male because that's what I am, having used my magical powers of reproduction in the past, being an owner of a few testiculars, I don't like this headline at all. I'll just be honest here. Chronic use has apparently been found to greatly impact male fertility. This study was performed on, well, let me just quote this, quote, healthy male non-human primates. These monkeys, or whatever they were, who were of reproductive age, who had reproduced in the past, were given an edible a day for seven months. The doses were steadily increased until they were the equivalent of a heavy medical dose for humans. Now, this is a big point that shouldn't be missed. Typically, animal testing is done with doses of whatever that no human could ever consume in 50 lifetimes. But this is a realistic amount. The senior author of the study, Jamie Lowe, MD, MCR, an associate professor of a whole lot of things, I mean like a paragraph worth that I'm not going to repeat here, said, quote, Our analysis of the collected samples found that THC use was associated with significant adverse impacts to the animal's reproductive hormones, including decreased levels of testosterone and severe testicular shrinkage, Specifically, we observed a greater than 50% decrease in testicular size. Unfortunately, these effects appear to worsen as the THC dose was increased, suggesting a possible dose-dependent effect. Now, once again, as a male, you never want to hear words like severe or shrinkage paired with the word testicular, and you definitely don't want to hear them all put together. Now, Jason C. Hedges, MD, PhD, the lead author of the study with nowhere near the title as compared to Ms. Lowe, said, quote, As the prevalence of edible marijuana use continues to increase in the U.S. and worldwide, particularly in males of prime reproductive age, even moderate doses could have a profound impact on fertility outcomes. While family planning may not be top of mind for those in their late teens and early 20s, The longer-term effects of THC on male reproductive health are not well-defined. It is possible that THC could cause lasting impacts that may alter family planning later in life. 
I guess as a side note or a side question, why does it seem like everything the left and some on the right are really pushing to legalize or force us to take or do or whatever? How come it all leads back to reproduction? Like abortion, hormone replacement, and transing the kids and adults, the homosexual agenda, even the COVID vaxes have some links showing up to fertility. Anyway, probably nothing. <laughs> probably nothing. So we've got heart failure, violence, and severe testicular shrinkage and fertility issues. Moving on, found on psychologytoday.com from January 2022, headline, The Complex Link Between Cannabis Use and Psychosis. Now, I'll be honest, I don't need the modifier of complex with this. If there's a link, I don't care about the complexity. I just care that there's a link. Now, the article does what I'm seeing more and more do lately here, knowing that people can't seem to focus for five minutes to read an actual article. They put the key points at the top. I find them interesting. First, the association of cannabis with schizophrenia-like psychosis has been clearly demonstrated. Next, whether cannabis causes schizophrenia-like psychosis remains unclear. New data supports a causal relationship between cannabis and schizophrenia-like psychosis. And evidence suggests scientific warnings about cannabis and psychosis are warranted. So this is a study of 3,720 adolescents over four years from the age of 13 to 16. The study used an annual self-report, which found that there was a, quote, clear association of cannabis use frequency with increased psychotic symptoms and not vice versa. Cannabis use in any given year was found to predict an increase in psychotic symptoms a year later and not the other way around. Findings from another study released at the same time, quote, of nearly 80,000 members of the general American population shows that those with cannabis use disorder, remember this is addiction, during the previous year have a 2.5-fold increase in the rate of formerly diagnosed schizophrenia-like psychotic disorder. Okay, so with that, now we're up to heart failure, violence, severe testicular shrinkage, fertility issues, and schizophrenia-like psychotic disorder. And finally, let's revisit a topic. Found on CNN.com from September 2023, headline, Driving while stoned leads to more traffic accidents in a country where marijuana is legal. Now, this study was done in America's hat, otherwise known as Canada, who legalized recreational cannabis in 2018. Quote, being stoned behind the wheel can be more dangerous than driving drunk in Canada, according to a new study. Quote, documented marijuana-related traffic accidents that required treatment in an emergency room rose 475 percent between 2010 and 2021, the study found. Car crashes due to drunk driving grew only 9.4 percent during the same time period, although the raw numbers of alcohol-related accidents was in the thousands, not the hundreds, as with cannabis. So the large percentage increase is a much smaller number of people, but still, this is a fairly significant finding and indicates a very bad trend. Quote, Just after Canadian legalization in 2018, when marijuana stores and products were limited, researchers found a 94% increase in emergency room visits. As commercialization increased and marijuana was more widely available, visits to the emergency room grew 233% compared to the period before recreational weed was legalized. 
See, the impairment in driving while using cannabis is similar to alcohol. Increased speed, increased reaction times, loss of focus, inability to process multiple events, increased risk-taking behavior. And the crash statistics apparently are very telling. Quote, Car crashes involving weed were serious. In marijuana-involved accidents, nearly 90% of the victims arrived by ambulance, the study found. When no alcohol or cannabis was involved, the number of people that required an ambulance dropped to 40%. In addition, nearly 50% of marijuana users in a car accident required hospital admission, compared to just over 6% of those who did not use. Intensive care admissions were also higher. Nearly 22% of accidents involving those driving while stoned needed intensive care compared to just less than 2% of crashes without alcohol or cannabis involvement. Those numbers seem to be very telling to me, or at least they should be, right? And this article had a lot of really good information in it, but one more thing I wanted to pull out of it. Quote, With alcohol, there are set limits on when a person can drive. The federal limit to legally drive in the United States is a blood alcohol content of 0.08%. If your blood alcohol level is above this level, you are presumed intoxicated and subject to a DUI charge. Most states, however, also have zero tolerance levels, often 0.02% or less, that apply to certain groups, such as bus and truck drivers and teenagers who aren't supposed to be drinking anyway. That helpful guidance isn't available for cannabis. It's illegal to use marijuana at any level and drive in the United States, just as it is for opioids, methamphetamines, or any potentially impairing drug, even if prescribed according to the National Highway and Transportation Safety Administration. There is no hard and fast rule about when it is safe to drive after using cannabis, as risk of impairment depends on multiple factors. No one should be driving if they are experiencing any acute psychoactive effects. Canada's lower-risk cannabis guidelines recommend not driving for at least six hours after using cannabis and avoiding cannabis and alcohol altogether. Waiting longer is safer. So, marijuana in the United States is federally illegal, except for CBD. That's legal, but only certain types of CBD from licensed growers and processors, unless you're talking state laws, in which case medical marijuana is legal in most of the country, but not all, and it's legal for recreational use in the majority of the country, but in less places than the states that are medicinally legal. And some states have reciprocity, you know, if you bring it across the state lines, but not all. But don't use it if you're employed federally, or if you're employed at all, really, depending on what job you do and who your employer is, unless they're cool with it, which they might be. And definitely, maybe, don't worry about past use, even though it definitely probably creates lasting psychotic effects. And why wouldn't it be completely legal everywhere, anyway? I mean, except for where it isn't, since it's as safe as smoking cigarettes, except for the links to, uh, you know, scrometing, peripheral artery disease, heart disease and heart failure, cerebrovascular and neurological issues, brain changes, schizophrenia-like psychotic disorder, depression and psychosis, violence across the board, and genetic changes, you know, fertility issues and severe testicular shrinkage, as well as impaired driving and a definite increase in traffic accidents. And remember, this is a gateway drug. In my opinion, indisputably so. And the drugs it's a gateway to are way, way worse. So what I just listed is the best that we can hope for. I think the real question should be, why was this and why is it still being legalized at all, anywhere right now? What is the benefit to anyone, those who use or those who don't? I'll stand by what I said before, that I'm very open to a medicinal use, very controlled, very carefully tested, and as close to a natural product as possible rather than being heavily modified. 
But we need to do that before it's legalized, either over the counter or by prescription. Of course, at this point, can't see a way we put the horse back in the barn, at least not with the current messaging and the current worldview. But if we're being honest, which we absolutely aren't, you know, with the studies done, with the data I found, I see absolutely no reason whatsoever that this should be legalized anywhere. But that's, of course, before taking into account our fairly recent desire to side on the side of criminals and decriminalize everything so as to allow criminals to do criminal things with no repercussions. Oh, and also money. Don't don't forget money. There's a lot of federal revenue, especially tax money, just hanging out there that nobody really seems to want. So the Fed or the states, well, they, they might as well just go ahead and swoop in and get a piece of that action, right? So is this really just a push to decriminalize something so tax dollars can be collected? Yeah, yeah you bet your sweet bippy it is, but this is much larger. This is uh, quite literally yet another illustration about the disregard for humanity. I want to bring this back around. This is nothing, in my opinion, but a satanic ploy to destroy, in yet another way, image bearers of God. Quote, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate, and the eyes of both of them were opened. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he send forth his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And then we see Cain killing Abel, which was the first spilling of blood of an image-bearer of God. We hear of the evil of Noah's day. We get into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and summed up in Deuteronomy, where God lays out laws against making idols that look like man, animal, bird, or fish. We get the laws regarding murder, intentional, unintentional, or accidental. We see laws prescribing death for disrespecting or harming parents. And from my understanding, I'd say logically, this would be for the adult children or children at least old enough that were well able to be responsible for their actions. Of course, being image bearers has little or nothing to do with physical appearance, since God is spirit, which actually makes it even more important. I mean, some parents have kids that are spitting images. Some have kids that are, I don't know, picked up traits from who knows how many generations back. Some parents have children with disabilities or deformities. Some parents have children that go through horrible accidents or disfiguring accidents. Except for the handful of borderline psychotic parents, probably tokers, like those found on shows like Toddlers and Tierras, or found on the sidelines screaming, shouting, frothing at the mouth at everyone, except for the handful that base their self-worth on physical appearance, the vast majority of parents will agree that appearance, strength, skill, etc., those things aren't even on the list of what they consider to be important about their child. Parents strive for emotional strength, strength of character, integrity, intelligence, common sense, kindness, and attributes and characteristics like that. Just as the image of a child to a parent is about who the child is, not what the child looks like, we, regardless of salvation, are image bearers of God because of our internal, inherent attributes, not physical features. And this is what Satan hates about us. 
He hates our emotions. He hates our logic. He hates integrity, intelligence, reason, kindness, goodness, etc. Even if it's those who aren't saved and yet perform human acts of kindness, Satan hates us. And I have no doubt that at least some of those power brokers that are working hard to legalize marijuana, for whatever their reasoning is, I think they're being used by Satan with the express purpose of destroying image bearers of God. And I say this because with all the studies, with all the mounting evidence that marijuana is in fact much more dangerous than what the accepted messaging tells us, those in charge simply don't care. They have no regard for God. They see no value in man except for how they can use him to benefit themselves. And this, I think, is where this push is coming from. A disdain, either conscious or subconscious, for God. A very low view of man. A very high view of self. Selfishness, greed, and contempt. I hope from this you've learned that not everything can be taken at face value. Very, very often we're given a singular message, followed by, trust me, would I lie? And the answer is yes, people will all too often lie for their agenda. As I've said many times before, we as humans, and especially as Christians, need to discern everything. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaking on the abomination of desolation says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The more we take everything at face value, the more we just go along to get along, the more we decline to discern, to be Bereans, and test everything, quite often bringing it back to the scripture, the more we will be in danger of being deceived. Salvation doesn't excuse naivety. Salvation doesn't excuse laziness. Salvation should do the opposite. It should make us search and strive for true truth in all things. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.